There are two signs at the front of the school bus that always made a lot of sense to me. The first one is, don't stand in front of the white line. And the second one is, don't talk to the driver. And the reason they make a lot of sense is if I get on a bus, I want the driver to be in charge. I want the bus to go where the bus said it was going to go. And I want the decisions to be made by someone who isn't me. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about monarchists. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Yes, we're here to talk about royalty. Royalty in many forms, not just the royalty in England or the royalty in any country, but the royalty in an organization or a corporation. A few years ago, the great Marshall Salins, one of the most important anthropologists of my lifetime, along with the dearly departed David Graeber, author of Debt, collaborated on a book called On Kings. It's dense, it's slow going, it's long, and it's all about the origins and the weirdness of monarchy. Because thousands and thousands of years ago, walking around in the jungle, in the desert, in the plains, in the savanna, people came to understand that things might be more efficient or effective if they had a leader. That having a leader, an organization, might make people's lives better. And that began a long cycle of kings. Kings often come from away. Who do you think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king then? The lady of the lake. Her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. And by that I mean they are not like you and me. They don't have to follow the cultural rules. Maybe they come from far away in a geographic sense, a plunderer, someone who came from another place. Or maybe they come from God. But either way, the king is not one of us. That is why the king is allowed to rule. And like that bus driver, the king's word is absolute because the king does not have to play by our rules. And if you do the math, you can see that a monarch cannot possibly rule unless there are monarchists. That monarchists, people who like the fact that there is a king, that there is someone in charge, are an essential part of creating a monarchy. There are monarchists in every country. There are monarchists in many organizations because the monarch lets us off the hook, because the monarch makes the decisions. And a constitutional monarchy, a monarch who is operating with the best interests of the people at heart 
and consistently and persistently makes long-term decisions that pay off, that's a really effective form of government. The problems spring up when the monarch, coming from away, not playing by the rules, not being part of the culture, having absolute power, when that monarch decides to do things that are selfish or short-sighted or aren't in the interest of the people the monarch is there for. And the history of monarchy in governments and, I would argue, in organizations is littered with a predictable string of failures to come for what happens when the monarch loses the thread. But then there's a second challenge. And the second challenge is that if you're letting the driver drive, everybody else on the bus is just a passenger. And so when industrialism came along 120 years ago, we had to figure out how to organize the factory. And we organized it in many ways like a nation state with someone in charge, a ruler, an owner, someone who doesn't have to play by the rules, who can park their car wherever they want to, who can come in when they want and leave when they want, someone who has their own air force, their own army, and their own agenda. If you want to work there, you can work there, but you're not in charge. The person in charge is in charge. And so they put Jack Welch on the cover of every business magazine every month forever because it appeared that this monarchy approach to ruling a company could really pay off. When Jack left GE, he took $417 million of shareholder cash with him as a prize for leaving behind his kingdom. Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, you get the idea. When we have an organization, an industrial organization that's run by a powerful founder or operator voice, it allows the people who work there to know exactly what they are supposed to do. They're just doing their job. They're a cog in the system. They're doing what they're told. Don't blame me. The king told me to do it. And over time, this degrades us. Over time, this lack of dignity from not making a decision, whether it is a decision as a citizen or a worker, ends up undermining our independence our ability to lead. And most of all, if you care about systems, it undermines our resilience. Because things work as long as they're working. But when the world changes, the question is who will sense that it is changing? Who will speak up? When the world changes, the question is who will take the lead on that new element? That when we have an opportunity to adjust, to change, to shift, is the monarch capable, interested, motivated to do that? Or do they like it the way it is right now? President Harry S. Truman famously had on his desk a sign that said, the buck stops here. That sign did not mean, I am in charge, go away. It meant, I am responsible. And that is the difference between having a monarch and having people who show up to take ownership of the work that they do, a path that's open to everybody. And so, as we think about how we want to change the culture, as we think about a new generation of leadership that's focused on things like dignity and fairness and equity and inclusion, how are we going to square that with the idea that some of us are monarchists? So, when I'm on a bus, it's true, I'm a monarchist. 
when I'm working with an organization, when I'm a customer, when I'm a citizen, I would prefer to be dealing with a more flexible, anti-monopolist organization, one that understands that tomorrow isn't going to be just like today, one that realizes that all of us are smarter than any of us, that we have learned a lot in the last hundred years. And one of the things we've learned is that the world keeps changing. And the other thing we've learned is that in the long run, it's always the long run. That in the long run, the urgency or emergency of the next 10 minutes is dwarfed by our need to build structures and systems and processes that allow people to be seen, to be heard, and most of all, to lead. Because if each of us takes responsibility as opposed to handing it off to the king that just walked in the door, it's harder, it's scarier, but it is ultimately what it means to be a contribution, to see possibility, and to be alive. Thanks for listening to my rant. Let's hear from Monty Python, and we'll see you next time. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is the time to level up? When is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I really love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes. Hello, Seth. This is Rabbi from London. I'm about to start a podcast just for fun. And, you know, if it makes anything, great. If not, it'll be a great, fun experience. I know there are services online where you can hire virtual assistants abroad where they can leave a review for your podcast, get more traffic to your podcast, uh, more download subscribers. And I'm questioning whether that is right or wrong, whether that could affect my podcast business in the future if it got off the ground. I know on Amazon, if there's fake reviews, I'm highly suspicious of that product. So I'm always looking for real reviews online. So when it comes to paying to get more traffic toward my podcast, is that a bad thing or is that just being savvy? Thank you. And I appreciate all the effort you do. Thank you for this honest question, Rabbi. And I hear you. It is super tempting when shortcuts present themselves, particularly when they look like obligations, to embrace them, 
and it leads to a corruption, a corruption in the standards that we thought mattered and a corruption in our own personal morals. But it's really interesting because once the shortcut becomes a standard, it stops being a corruption and it starts being an established cost of doing business. SEO in the old days, the idea of building a website so that search engines would be more likely to index it, was a hack. It was a shortcut. It was something you weren't supposed to spend money on. You were supposed to simply build something that was good enough. And now every single major entity spends a lot of money on SEO because it is considered part of what you have to do. When the New York Times bestseller list began to get gamed, when people would show up at an author's doorstep and say, for $50,000, I will guarantee you a slot on the bestseller list, it was clearly wrong. It was wrong because the bestseller list served several purposes, some economic, some cultural. And undermining it by buying a slot in it is clearly not what it's about. And yet many people did it. I have never done it. I never will do it. But it is, for many categories, now a cost of doing business. And so we get to your question, which is, the podcast thing. Well, first, I think we can have a useful argument on the merits about whether lots and lots of fake reviews actually help the business of your podcast. I would argue that they don't. I've told this story before, but years ago, a friend was sad. And I said to her, what's up? She said, well, I have to go negative. I said, what does that mean, you have to go negative? She said, well, I made a rule for myself, which is I can't follow more people on Instagram then follow me. And there are people I want to follow now, but I don't have enough followers to do it, which means I'm going to have to go into deficit. Well, I thought this was fairly amusing. So for her birthday, I bought her 15 or 20,000 followers on Instagram. It cost me about $149. No harm, no foul. No one was injured. It didn't change anything, but it made her very happy. Well, it's pretty clear that there's lots of fake followers on Instagram and Twitter. And it's also pretty clear that people with fake followers don't generally build a long-term resilient future for themselves. So I would argue in the case of the podcast, where it is not yet a cost of doing business to go buy yourself fake reviews, don't worry about it. Don't read the reviews. Don't count the reviews. The way to build a podcast that works is to build a podcast to 10 people who listen to it will happily tell 10 more people about. Because you can get 10 people, 10 friends, 10 colleagues to listen to your first episode. And if they tell the others, then the word spreads. Repeat that 30 weeks in a row, and now you have a hit. Hey, Seth. Richard here in Hong Kong. I recently listened to a podcast which you did with Tim Ferriss, and you guys talked about attitude as a skill one skill in particular named resiliency or resilience. Developing resilience, it's a kind of a double-edged sword because it's such an important skill to get, but you only get it through tough scenarios. So I believe resilience only comes as a product of having challenges and facing adversity. Is there another way to coach in resilience, real resilience? not the type of resilience you get from case study theory or from coaching and mentorship, but real resilience. Love to hear what you had to say. 
Thanks for everything. Have a great 2021. Thanks for this question, Richard. I think that there are two kinds of resilience that we're both talking about here. There is the resilience of structure, the resilience of the world isn't going to turn out the way you expect. Are you anti-fragile? Do you have a portfolio? Is there a way forward when your dreams do not come true? And then there is the resilience of emotional intelligence. How do we internally process something that didn't work? So I think it's worth treating them separately. The first kind of resilience, this is the resilience of somebody who learns from a young age, don't bet everything on 32 red on the roulette wheel because you're going to get out of the game. And staying in the game is the only way you get to keep playing the game. And I think we can learn this without trauma. I think we can learn this, for example, with board games, with lots of games that we can play as kids because it helps us understand that strategy is not the same as tactics. It helps us understand that if the dice comes up in a way we didn't expect, it's not personal. That the kid who cries and throws the board when they lose at Parcheesi needs to learn something about how external forces work. External forces don't care about you, and they don't know about you. And this idea of modeling various game theories and of course, game theory has nothing to do with board games. Various theories about how the world will unfold makes it much more likely we can be unemotional about how the world is going to be, that that is one form of resilience. But I think you're right. The second part is that growing up, part of what it means to grow up, even if you're 40 years old, is to fall down, scrape your knee, and get up and do it again. If you've done a good job on the first part, when you fall down and scrape your knee, you will have the power to get up and do it again. It's not fatal. But then you need the emotional reserve to be able to say to yourself, yep, that happened. That happened again. Here we go. Because one of the problems of isolating our kids, of isolating young adults, of creating a system that's based on just getting an A, getting the right answer and moving to the next level, is that sometimes it doesn't work out the way we expect. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. 
Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.